I know it's probably not well with everyone's soul in the house today. And it's been a week since we've gathered in this room together to worship, and I don't know what has befallen you in the week prior, but you may be really struggling today. And a lot of times we talk about leaving everything at the door and leaving all our worldly concerns out there and coming in to worship God, but that is difficult to do sometimes. And maybe you've brought your baggage in with you. And you know what? That's not such a bad thing because if you've brought your baggage in with you, you have an opportunity to lay it at the Lord's feet this morning. And if not everything is well with your soul, I pray that this hour of worship will provide you an opportunity to anchor yourself again to the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ. This is the last sermon in our parables series that we've called Long Story Short. And next week on Easter Sunday, we'll begin something new. We're going to start a new series. Um, It's called, let me try to remember what I called it. This changes everything. This changes everything. And we'll, of course, be talking about the empty tomb. Next week, we'll talk about the resurrection of our Lord in a sermon called He Lives. And we'll talk about how His resurrection totally changes life for us. Uh, And you'll find an outline for that sermon series in your bulletin. I want to invite you back next week. Bring somebody with you. And who knows, if somebody comes with you next week, maybe, just maybe, they will be encouraged and inspired to join us the week after. And maybe the week after that. Imagine that it's a Sunday morning and we've assembled together. It shouldn't be too hard to do because here we are. And two men are called upon to pray. The first is a man who's been a Christian, a baptized believer for 50 years, and a longtime member of our church. He's respected in our community for being fair and upright and full of good works, and he's always well-dressed, he looks nice, he's got a great family who's also well-respected. This is man number one who's called upon to pray. The second is a man who's been visiting for a few weeks, and he's a recovering alcoholic. He was raised in a Christian home. He was baptized long ago, but he's been away from the faith for the majority of his adult life. But now he's back. But we know about his past. We know that he's long been mixed up with the wrong crowd, involved in all kinds of sinful, destructive behaviors, but it does seem that at this juncture in his life, he's ready to turn things around. And they both pray for us in an assembly. Now, who do you think will lead the better prayer? The more appropriate prayer. The more God-honoring prayer. The more theologically, doctrinally rich prayer. The prayer that better reflects the way that we are instructed to pray in Scripture. The, The prayer that better reflects the language of Scripture itself. Who will lead the better prayer that morning? Jesus begins the parable that we are looking at today, which is recorded in Luke chapter 18, in this way. Two men, similar to the way I began the story this morning, two men went up into the temple to pray. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Now, to go to the temple in Jerusalem, you always had to go up because it was situated on a mount that stood up above all the rest of the city of Jerusalem. 
And when you see this construction here, the way that Jesus begins, it ought to call to mind other stories with striking contrast that also feature two people. For instance, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And we're familiar with this story. And we're familiar with the very different paths that these two boys took in their lives. Or what about this story from Jesus? There was a rich man, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. And we are reminded of, of the very different ways that, that these men experienced life after death. That's Luke chapter 16. Now here... In terms of contrast, we get a doozy. In chapter 18, verse 10, the two men who went up to pray were a Pharisee and a tax collector. And to the average Jewish mind, you could not have come up with two more polar opposite people. A Pharisee and a tax collector went up into the temple to pray. Now, the Pharisees, they were a relatively small, but a highly powerful, highly influential group of Jews. In fact, the most influential of the three major sects of the Jews during the time of Jesus. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Pharisees were most powerful. And as we see throughout the Gospels, many of them emphasized meticulous observance of God's law. And to them, that included not just the Old Testament law, but these extra-biblical traditions that that they had stacked up and accumulated uh, through the years. So stuff that is outside of God's law, as recorded in the Old Testament. And they treated these behaviors as the means to attain righteousness before God and to retain His favor. So those are the Pharisees, in a nutshell. And then you've got a tax collector, the usual suspect. Often in the Gospels, shorthand for a sinner, like a stand-in for somebody who you know is involved in sinful behavior. Tax collectors were often Jewish men who were representatives of the Roman government. And so, to the Israelites, to the Jews, the Hebrews, they were traitors. They were sellouts to the empire and looked down upon greatly. But on top of that, they as a group were also known to be, they were notoriously dishonest in their collection, skimming off the top what they gathered gathered from their own people and padding their pockets with it. And this caused them to be despised among their people. A Pharisee and a tax collector. Now who's going to lead the better prayer? Is there even a contest? I mean, the Pharisee, right? He wins it by a mile. He knows more about the law. He is more devoted to the study of the law. He's been steeped in the language of Scripture, which he will be able to eloquently recall during his prayer. He's not involved in all these sinful behaviors that the tax collector is involved in. The Pharisee wins the prayer contest. It is no contest. He's going to lead the better prayer. But, as he often does, Jesus throws his listeners for a loop. And he throws us for a loop as well. Verse 11, chapter 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, 
unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So in these verses, what do we learn about this Pharisee? Well, to his credit, and if he's telling the truth, and and I believe, well, this is a story of Jesus. I believe in the story world, the Pharisee is speaking truth about his own spiritual life. And so let's give credit where credit is due. He is not involved in several sinful behaviors. He says as much in his prayer. He is not cheating other people out of their money. He's not an extortioner. He's not involved in the unfair, unjust treatment of his neighbor. He's not an adulterer, so he's not running around on his wife. And he's not like that tax collector that stands nearby either. That vile tax collector. And not only is he not involved in sinful behaviors, he is involved, as he makes clear, in several God-honoring practices. And if you read between the lines here, you can see that he's going above and beyond what is even required of him. You see, the Old Testament law required, according to Leviticus chapters 16 and 23, it required only one fast a year. And how many times is this guy fasting? The Pharisee. Twice a week. So, I mean, he's, he is really... Serving the Lord faithfully here. I mean, he is going above and beyond what's required in order to please the Lord. And then we see that he gives a tithe um, of all that he gets when the Old Testament law only requires a tithe from crops. And so he is giving a percentage, a cut of every source of income and, and giving it back to the Lord. So this guy is righteous. He is upright. We learn that about him from these verses. But that's not all we learn. We we learn not only that he's upright, we learn that he's proud of his uprightness. We learn that he's so proud of his uprightness that he looks down his nose at others. He sees that compared to others, he is extremely righteous. And he has begun to hold other people that he deems less righteous in contempt. And listen, he's not the only one for whom this is a temptation. I heard about a Sunday school teacher who, after almost an hour of excellent instruction on this parable, digging into every detail that the text has to offer has to offer, he had thoroughly explained the self-righteousness, the arrogance of the Pharisees. And at the end of the Sunday school hour, he concluded in prayer, in all seriousness, this is what he said, thank you, Lord, that we are not like the Pharisee in this story. Can you believe that? At the end of the instruction, thank you, Lord, that we're not like that Pharisee. And we should remind ourselves not to laugh too hard at that, lest our laughter is saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that Sunday school teacher. This temptation is ever-present. How many eyes do you see in the Pharisees' prayer? I count five. And it's not a long prayer. I thank you that I am not like these other sinners. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He is arrogantly focused on his good behavior, on his piety, on his purity to the neglect of the goodness of God 
He doesn't have his eyes fixed on God and on his grace and on his mercy. He's only focused on himself. And we skipped over Luke's introduction to this parable, which is very telling in verse 9. The way that he, the way that he sets this up he, is he says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. They had faith in themselves to behave in a certain way. They were confident in themselves to be upright and righteous. So that's the Pharisees' prayer. Verse 13 gives us the tax collectors. But, Jesus continues, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So what we learn here is that this tax collector is full of shame for the way that he's behaved in the past. Genuine shame. So much shame he would not even lift his eyes up to the heavens, but he buried them. He looked down. And he beat his breast, which is a sign of contrition and godly sorrow. We learn here that he is penitent. He's contrite in admitting his sin to God. He is forthright with his sin. He's honest to God. I am a sinner and I beg of your mercy. And by now we should know that this is about far more than contrasting prayers. This is not just a prayer contrast, just to be clear. This is about contrasting approaches to God. How do we approach God? How do we see ourselves before God? And listen, one of these approaches is right and one is wrong. The tax collector, I mean, it's evident, had not been as committed to the law as the Pharisee. I mean, he hadn't studied the law like the Pharisee. He didn't know the law front to back, back to front like the Pharisee. But he understood something the Pharisee did not. And what he understood happened to be foundational. He understood that he was a sinner in need of grace. And in all the Pharisee's studies of the law, for some reason, he missed it. And when he missed that, he missed it all. Because that difference, the difference between these two gentlemen... That difference, it means everything. It's, it, it is the bedrock on which everything else is built. The problem is not that the Pharisee was obedient to the law. This story is not saying it's better to be a sinner than overly devoted to the law of the Lord. We dare not think that. It would be a misreading. Some people have approached this story and they have seen, well, maybe... It's, you know, God prefers a sinner over somebody who is devoted to following his ways and his will. We, we should not read it in that way. It is good for us to be devoted to the law. And I'm not talking about the Old Testament law anymore. I'm talking about the law and the commandments of Jesus Christ. We should be growing in our faith and our commitment and our devotion to him. Let's be clear about what this story is teaching. The tax collector is not commended because he's a sinner. Jesus is not praising him because of his sin. 
He's praising him because he's honest with God about his sin. He's praising him because he recognizes the seriousness of his sin, the damage that his sin has caused. And he's going and he's begging God for his mercy because he understands the great power and the destruction that sin can wrought in his life. And the Pharisee is not rebuked because he's committed to the law. We gave him credit for trying his very best to follow the law of the Lord. He's not rebuked for that. He's rebuked because he has an erroneous perspective on the law. He's rebuked because he missed that which is most important. The problem is that his obedience, the Pharisee's obedience, wasn't built on a foundation of God's grace. He wasn't thinking about God. He wasn't thinking about all that God had done for him. All that God had done for his people in the past in delivering them from Egyptian slavery and rescuing them and giving them a land and protecting them and loving them. He wasn't thinking about God. He was only thinking about Himself and his own good behavior. His blindness to his own need for grace. I mean, listen to him here. He has the audacity to brag to God. The gall to say, God, look at me and my good works. When the Old Testament says our good works are like dirty rags compared to the holiness and righteousness of God. The New Testament, there is not one good person, not one righteous person, no, not one. And this guy has the boldness, the foolishness to stand before God and say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him or her or that group of people. Let me tell you what I've been up to in order to behave in appropriate ways. My goodness, the blindness. But again, We dare not say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. Because we are. We are easily tempted by the same temptation. But his blindness to his own need for grace and his contempt for others, it all makes, this is the irony of it, it makes him guilty of a sin that is just as damning as the ones he lists, extortion, unjust treatment of others, Adultery, you can add another one to the list which he struggles with, which he possesses, and it's pride. Pride. Jesus concludes his parable in this way. Verse 14. I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everybody who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A shocking ending for the original hearers. Maybe not so much for us because we know the story. We know what's coming. But for them it would have taken out their feet from under them. The one who tried to justify himself walked away unjustified but the one who fully depended on God's grace and on His mercy, He was the one who was justified. You see, it doesn't matter how many good works that long-time Christian man that we started with in our sermon is involved in. 
doesn't matter how respected he is in the church or in the community, doesn't matter how great a reputation he and his, his family has, if that man, that longtime Christian, doesn't understand that everything he is and everything he does proceeds from the mercy and grace of goodness and the goodness of God, it is all for naught. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. To use the language of another parable, such a man has built his house on a foundation of sand. And it doesn't matter how much sin that recovering alcoholic has piled up in his life. It doesn't matter how many terrible, sinful behaviors and attitudes he's been involved in in the past if he humbly and penitently admits his sin and seeks God's mercy, he'll be the one who walks away justified. Jesus tells this story not long before he is hung on a cross. And it would soon become evident to his early followers and evident to us That his blood flowing down the hill of Calvary is the means. The only means. Not my good works. Not my avoidance of sin. Not all the righteous behaviors that I'm involved. That blood is the only means of being justified by God. But for his grace, I would be lost in my sins. May I never forget that. May we never forget that. And for this reason, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we should always pray like that tax collector. In a way. We should always bow our heads in humility. We should always confess our sins. We should always thank God for His mercy and His goodness and grace in the past. And we should beg that His mercy would continue. And we should acknowledge that without you, oh God, I am a sinner. And I'm lost. If you hadn't done what you did for me. So don't trust in yourself. Like that Pharisee. Don't trust in your own good works. They amount to a hill of beans compared to the goodness and greatness of God. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in the Savior of the world, the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Nothing but the blood can atone for your sins. And if you need to come today confessing sin, if you're ready to be baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins so that you can rise up out of that water and walk in newness of life following Jesus throughout the remainder of your days into eternity, we invite you to come. It's the only way to remedy this sin sickness that the whole world is infected with only by coming and saying yes to Jesus. Or if you're struggling in any other ways, you need the forgiveness of God, you need the prayers of this body of believers, you need to set your feet back on the narrow way, then you have an opportunity to come at this time as well. Or we've got two elders who are always in the conference room or the library back here They're waiting on you to come by. If you want to talk to them about something that's going on in your life, if you need prayers for any reason, take advantage of that. Take advantage of this opportunity you have right now as we stand and sing.
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus for my cleansing, this by plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious. <coughs> no other fault I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that makes me white as no hope, no other fault I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Be seated. 